I'm Chris Reback. This is Investigating Breast Cancer, the podcast of the Breast Cancer Research Foundation and conversations with the world's leading scientists studying breast cancer prevention, diagnosis, treatment, survivorship, and metastasis. How does cancer grow? Why do some cancers react positively to treatment while others seem to resist? Understanding these relationships, the genetic events, and cell-to-cell interactions that lead to cancer not only can provide better understanding of how cancer develops, but also drive potential new targets for drug development. Understanding these relationships also is central to the incredible work being done by Dr. Ben Ho Park. Dr. Park was recently appointed as co-leader of the Breast Cancer Research Program, Associate Director for Translational Research, and Director of Precision Oncology at the Vanderbilt Ingram Cancer Center in Nashville. He's been a BCRF investigator since 2008, and as you'll hear at the top, he also has a unique creative talent that surely won't directly lead to solving breast cancer, but it does seem to make his lab an engaging and fun place to work. And who knows, perhaps in some way that creative culture is part of what inspires Dr. Park's creative research approaches. Before our conversation, though, an ask from me to you. I hope you like these investigating breast cancer conversations, and if so, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to iTunes, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast. Thank you for considering my request. That's it. Here's my conversation with Dr. Park. Dr. Park, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. So I get to do a lot of these conversations, and they're all fascinating, but yours is the first one where I really have to start not with the groundbreaking, life-changing research, you know, your life's work and all of that, but instead <laughs> with nicknames. So you you have some interesting people working in your lab. Apparently, I am talking to Dr. Ben Tally Ho Park. And <laughs> among the folks you work with include Sarah Bellum Crossman, Mark of the Covenant Rosen, Gina. If I can, if you can, I can. Canzanero. I mean, th- yeah. these are these are class top. These are top notch nicknames, Doctor. Yeah, I am um, quite a fan of puns. Um, <laughs> And I, uh, some of those come very easily. Some of them I've actually worked at. Some of them between you and me are just really horrible. <laughs> well, I've, we we, I've did, actually, we didn't mention those. <laughs> no, no, they were pretty I, good. I have known to revise some of them. My favorite one, though, is I had a graduate student, an MD-PhD student, a number of years ago, and her name was Grace Kim. And I called her Grace for the Cure, Kim. I thought that was perfect. Oh, that is really good, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, I unsuspectingly demand some sort of silly picture, and if they don't take it, I will just snap one with my iPhone and uh, put it up there and threaten them with that. So yeah, most well, of my trainees are well aware of this. Silly photos are are quite the threat, and, and but it, it gives off. Uh, it, it it was fun to to read, and I was yeah trying to think through you know what what was you know about the personalities behind it, but uh, you know it gives off a a real sense and a and a you know. A, I, I'm sure exactly what the type of place that you run, which is um, working hard, but uh, a bunch of people who you know have some personality and, and fun behind them. So uh, good for you. Makes it must make uh, every day just uh, that much more enjoyable. Yeah, I think you know the work hard, play hard philosophy is really uh, strong within our group in our lab, and uh, I've always felt like we have to take the mission seriously and the job seriously, but we don't have to take ourselves that seriously. Oh, and I think that has served us well. 
That's well put. Yeah, that's uh, well. Uh, anyhow, the uh, the the serious work is is evident, and it's evident in uh, you know the the results. And um, let, let's talk about that for a second. Let's turn to the research. Sure. How does cancer grow? Well, you know, the, it's more of a complicated question than one might actually think. Um, superficially, we know that cells divide, and so you know, cells are the building blocks of our bodies. Each of our bodies have trillions of cells. And they're all very tightly controlled into, in terms of how they grow and how they don't grow. Those are two equally important parts of the equation. And so cancer cells can grow because one of those two areas goes or becomes faulty, uh, meaning that cells abnormally can proliferate and or cells can abnormally not proliferate, meaning that they should stop growing, um, but they don't in cancer when they really should. And so we think of that in terms of both accelerators and brakes. And so you could either press the accelerator and the cells start dividing, or you can um, disable or have faulty brakes. And in that case, the cells will continue to grow when they shouldn't. Um, but there's even more components to that. Cancer mm. cells not only grow, they spread, or it's what we call metastasize. And really, that's what kills patients is when cancer spreads to distant organs and starts taking over, if you will. And so those fundamental ideas and concepts of how cancer grows, spreads, and kills patients really has dictated our thinking for you know, the better part of uh, you know, 40 years or more and dictates our thinking on how we're going to attack cancer. And now we know even more because what causes the abnormal growth or the abnormal you know, faulty breaks is really a series of genetic events. You know, each one of our cells has DNA, and DNA is a, an alphabet. It's a blueprint of our cells. And what cancer really um, is are mistakes of DNA. It's almost like mm. our bodies are trying to evolve to be immortal and live forever, but unfortunately they do so at the cost of the host. And so that kind of process where you have some folks in our business called clonal evolution where you get one mistake that gives it a slight growth advantage and then you get a lot of cells that grow a little bit. You might think of that in terms of like a polyp for colon cancer, but mm -hmm. that's not cancer yet. But then any one of those cells can get another genetic hit or mutation, as we say, and that gives it another growth advantage so that now it can become a cancer and so on and so forth. So it takes about, people estimate, five to eight of these DNA mistakes or mutations before you can go from a normal cell to a cancer cell. And what if one catches such a cell in the first or third mutation? I, I fully assume that's exactly what one tries to do. We, we try to catch it before it gets to that five to eight zone? Yes, exactly. And that's really where the focus is on earlier prevention and screening. Using, again, the example of colon cancer where we have a polyp. A polyp is a growth and it's a... Um, technically a tumor. A tumor really is just a growth, but it's not necessarily a cancer. And so if we can screen via colonoscopy and identify a polyp and remove it, then we've really reduced the chance of that polyp ever becoming a cancer. Similarly, in breast cancer, we have the equivalence of things that we call in situ carcinoma, and even earlier, some things that we call ductal hyperplasia. And, um, and there's also other variants called lobular hyperplasia, the spectrum of normal to cancer falls along the same paradigm. And so many patients you in this country will get diagnosed with what we call ductal carcinoma in situ. Mm -hmm. Under the microscope, the cells look cancerous, but they haven't actually invaded 
beyond their normal ductal architecture. The, the breast tissue is made up largely of ducts and glands, and cells that form the ducts are the ones that usually become breast cancer in most patients. So many patients in this country are diagnosed with stage zero breast cancer. Hmm. That's a real kind of misnomer and head scratcher because how can you have stage zero breast cancer? But that is ductal carcinoma in situ. And it's treated locally as if it were a cancer because we want to catch it and cure it before it actually does become a cancer. So let's focus on what's going on inside and among the cancer cells because there are some things that you've written that um, just sound fascinating and a better, you know, and, and confusing for somebody like me, but uh, um, you know, <laughs> important, no doubt. So, so there are these cell-to-cell interactions, and you've shown <laughs> that, and, and I'm quoting here, cancer cells with single mutations interact with neighboring cells with other discrete mutations to increase cancerous growth and drug resistance. But here's the key. These cell-to-cell interactions require physical cell-to-cell contact. So a moment ago, you were talking to me about genetic changes, about DNA changes, and about those mutations, and and how, you know, and then ultimately potentially, and and one hopes not, metastasis. Here, these are the ways the cells, it sounds like, interact with each other, and that the physical cell-to-cell contact is what matters? Well, this is a brand new area, and we haven't published this yet, but we are getting ready to submit it for publication. But it is uh, potentially a a different way of thinking about how cancer evolves. And this is based upon uh, other observations made by others, and as as well as uh, models that several groups have now shown. Nobody has really taken human breast cells and demonstrated that there are specific mutations that are distinct in each of those cells, but the cells are otherwise identical, that grown separately have one type of behavior, but when you mix them together, have another. And that Mm. really kind of blows away our concepts of how cancers evolve, as the classic paradigm has always been what I just told you, how, you know, you get one genetic hit, and then that grows, you get another genetic hit in the same cell. And we've modeled that as well, and you definitely do see changes when you add on mutations within the same cell. What was recently appreciated is that it looks like in some cancer patients, but not all, and this is again breast cancer, that we see different populations of cells or even what we call sometimes subclonal populations of cells where not all of the cells share the same mutations and some of the cells even have distinct mutations. Mm. And so it it really, um, it occurred to me that we have really good model systems to try to study this um, but it also occurred to me that this is the type of stuff that if you were to try to put this through for traditional funding mechanisms, it would get killed and blown out of the water because we don't have, at least at the time, we didn't have enough preliminary data to demonstrate that this was something that we could really, you know, at the end of five years show that we had something. And so I think the nature of foundations like BCRF that grant um you know, these, these types of um, programs to investigators, not necessarily to the project per se, but more about investigators. And, you know, we describe what we were working on at the time. That really has been essential um, to our ability to move this project forward. And so this is exactly what you were saying. We were very, very surprised to discover this, that if we mix up cells that 
one of the cells confers a growth advantage to the other cell. And again, that's a little bit mind-blowing that yeah. you could actually think about that, uh, that there could be two populations of cells and it's actually the physical touching of those two cells at their outer surface or the membrane, as we call it, that confers this advantage. And so we're working on exactly how this happens and we've got some clues, but this is also an opportunity for thinking about how you would drug these cells. As an example, you might have a drug against one of the mutations, in this particular case, something called PIK3CA, versus another drug that hits the HER2 population. And historically, when we've looked at patients' tumors that have, let's say, 10% of the population has the, the PIK3CA mutation and yeah. 90% has the HER2 mutation, we might not think about targeting the PIK3CA because that's the minority subpopulation. What we're discovering and, and kind of working out in these models is that that thinking may not actually be correct, meaning that you could attack the HER2 population, but that'll get rid of everything, but that's the dependent population on the PIK3C, PIK3CA population. So in fact, even though it's 90%, it's getting its growth properties from that minor population. And so it now makes more sense if having that knowledge we should be attacking that minor subpopulation of cells. And that's, again, very, very different than what we would normally do. You it, know, it would be of, a, yeah, it would be a massive yeah, rethinking. It would be a massive yeah. rethinking, right? I mean, Exactly. And so that's kind of why we were very excited about this, because maybe it affords us an opportunity to think about how cells are dependent upon one another, but you could kind of hit it at the, the roots, if you will, the thing that's really causing the growth, the population of cells, that is. Uh, and that may also be one of the reasons why there's resistance to therapies. It's not really resistance. You're just not getting the right clone. That's, what I, was, population. that's what I was going to ask you. Was kind of what, what got your brain thinking in this way? I mean, you, it, it forces you, or, or I guess you were forced, to think in a differentiated way, in a way, as you kind of described, that, that runs counter to decades of thought. Was it something that you saw or was it something that you didn't see? Because you just raised uh, drug resistance, which was something I um, I wanted to ask you about. I know that that's an area that, that you yep. have studied. And so was it more that you saw something or was it that you've looked at drug resistance and thought about drug resistance and you're just like, man, this doesn't make sense. Why Why do some therapies work in some cases, but not in other cases? You know, it's a little of both. It's a uh, combination of having patient data, seeing patients, getting their tumors sequenced, understanding that there are these subpopulations that sometimes it looks like there's two totally independent tumors. Um, and that's also different in our thinking from traditional standard approaches or the paradigms that we've been used to working with. But it's also seeing patients develop drug resistance and then seeing what's left behind afterwards. So it's really combinations of both that kind of forged our thinking into hypothesizing that maybe there's more to this than what we have really thought, that our models and ideas have been a bit simplistic. And mm. in fact, we know that cancer is a very complex disease, that there are many different types and there's many different ways to get to becoming a cancer and becoming metastatic disease. That's really where I think uh, there's, the advantage of having 
opportunities like BCRF to say, you know what, we know that this could be construed as a crazy idea, that this is not conventional thinking, but you know, this is how discoveries are made, and you yeah. have to do some high-risk, high-reward um, research in one's portfolio if we're really going to dramatically move the needle forward. So yeah. I don't, I'll be the first to tell you, I don't know whether this is really going to pan out to be a hugely you know, paradigm-shifting way of thinking of all cancers. I, I actually don't think it's going to be for all cancers. But I can tell you, based upon sequencing efforts from breast cancer patients and their individual metastases, we do see this sometimes, and that did inform these experiments. And so where are you on that? You, you said you're, you, where are you on that uh, experimentation? Well, so it's being led by several students in the lab right now, and our hope would be that we can wrap this up in the next few months and submit it for publication somewhere. Wow. Okay. Well, uh, but good. the cool thing about this is that um, one of the things that um, our student, my students have done, they've now labeled cells with, we, we call them fluorescent proteins. Um, and so you can actually label the one cell with the one mutation green and the other cell with the other mutation red. And we've made these really awesome movies. And I hope uh, once this is published, I can put them up on, on the web page for BCRF because you can see how the one population, the red cells in this case, if they're not touching any of the green cells, they just, uh, in the middle of the, sc- uh, the movie on the screen, they just stay dormant. Mm. And then as soon as the green cells are growing and they touch the red cells, the red cells start taking off. Wow! Yeah, that that yeah, would be that would, cool. It really cool, and and also really helpful um, to communicate the point because what you just described, you know, in, in a movie and red and green cells and watching them interact yeah. or not. I mean, we can all get that. That's that's yeah. really gettable. Um, yeah, that would that would be fascinating. So I, I saw. Does this relate to? I saw a quote of yours at at one point. Uh, were were you? Worried potentially that that perhaps we are overtreating breast cancer, and I think that was the oh, word yeah. that you. What, what what did you mean by that? And and what break do you do you have that concern? Did I get the was it was it the right you word? Got it. You nailed it. But it's not just me. All medical oncologists who treat breast cancer and other types of cancers are worried about this, and not worried in the sense that are we overtreating? Um, undoubtedly and unequivocally, we are overtreating. Hmm. We worry about the side effects and toxicities. The, the paradigm of how we treat early-stage breast cancer patients, early-stage colorectal cancer, some lung cancers, is that we do surgery. I mean, for early-stage solid tumors, the intent is usually cure. And so we always say that there's one shot at cure, meaning that first solid tumors like breast cancer, it's a local problem, meaning that the breast is in, or I'm sorry, the tumor is in the breast. We need to get rid of that, so we can do that with surgery and then sometimes surgery with radiation. That can take, can take care of the local component. But then there's also the systemic component. That is, what if cancer cells have now gone into the circulation, and what will happen is with time, if they're left untreated, they will become distant metastatic disease, which is not curable. And the reason for that is because, as I was telling you before, cancer is really the... Um, accumulation of multiple mistakes in the DNA, but it's not a static process. All cancers to some degree have what we call genetic instability, and that's what drives all these mistakes, but it also drives all these subpopulations and what we call tumor heterogeneity. 
Mm. And so the soonest that we can detect cancer when it's metastasized is about a cubic centimeter, and that's already a billion cancer cells. And each one of those cells is a little bit different from each other, and so we don't have currently drugs that we can throw at patients and cure metastatic disease to get rid of every single cancer cell because there's so many. There's already drug-resistant clones, if you will, or cells that will grow out to become the new dominant population. But if you rewound the clock before you got to a billion cells, before you can see the cancer metastasize, let's say it's 10,000 cells, Mm. therein lies the opportunity to try to eradicate microscopic systemic disease that that would otherwise come back if left untreated. And that's why we use multiple drugs after surgery to, to treat and eradicate patients of microscopic metastatic disease. So that all sounds well and good, but here are the real numbers and facts. After surgery or local therapy, so surgery and radiation, the majority of early stage breast cancer patients in this country will be cured, maybe 60 to 70%. And the rest, meaning 30%, let's say, yeah. are gonna have micrometastatic disease. Mm. If we treat with chemotherapy, hormone therapy, HER2-directed therapy, depending on the type of breast cancer, we can reduce that 30% maybe by half, maybe a little bit more depending on the subtype. So now rather than you know, 30% of patients recurring with metastatic disease, we've chopped that down to maybe 10 to 15%, again, wow. depending on stage and the type of cancer. So there's still a lot of patients that we're not going to get because 10% of breast cancer patients in this country alone annually, that's going to be about 20 plus thousand cases of Mm. breast cancer that is going to come back as metastatic incurable disease. And we know that we're curing this because of these large clinical trials or, or we're curing additional patients with systemic therapies because of the large clinical trials that have randomized patients after local therapy Patients get randomized to placebo or chemotherapy. These studies take years to decades uh, to complete. And if you have enough patients and enough follow-up time, you can show that chemotherapy, as an example, cuts the uh, rate of recurrence, distant metastatic recurrence, by about 10 to 15%. Mm. Now, that all sounds well and good. The problem is when I see a patient in clinic for the first time with newly diagnosed breast cancer and she's just had her local therapy, I don't know if she's cured or not. Yeah, yeah. Majority of them are, but I don't have a microscopic, you know, view or lens to let me know whether this patient actually has microscopic disease. So we tend to treat almost everyone. We treat a hundred patients, let's say, to save fifteen, knowing fully that seventy don't need it. Because you can't but, necessarily get that microscopic. View it you don't know. Point. You don't know. You don't know. And you get one shot at cure. Yeah. So that's why we overtreat. Yeah. Now, we've made some progress. There's the uh, Oncotype test and others that can help us decide whether yeah. or not that this is really a type of breast cancer that is going to recur in 10 years versus is it even, um, and I should say, and is it even sensitive to chemotherapy? Uh, but in my view, it would be great to augment such tests with real-time you know, evidence that a patient does or does not have microscopic disease. And therein lies the first kind of utility that I see for so-called liquid biopsies, which also has been funded by BCRF in the past. Yes. And looking at what we call cell-free DNA, it, it's um, long been known that all of our cells, whether they're normal or cancerous, shed or secrete 
small DNA molecules into the bloodstream. And nobody knows exactly what this is for. Some people have ascribed some function. Many people just think it's a waste product, including myself. I like, a, I like to call this a cellular poop. I've said that in some <laughs> lectures. And yeah, well, that's, that's the technical medical term we, we all know. Exactly. Yeah, it's one of my favorites. <laughs> and the, the knowledge of this has actually been around for decades, but we didn't have technologies that allowed us to really assay for this. And so finally, over the past couple decades now, we've gotten better in terms of DNA sequencing and looking for... Uh, small amounts of DNA in whatever source that we can throw at the machines. In this case, it's plasma from the blood. And in fact, fetal maternal medicine, that whole field is about a decade ahead of us. There are now tests, believe it or not, where a pregnant mom can go to a doctor, get blood drawn, and have the fetal DNA sequenced from her blood. And so we don't have to necessarily do amniocentesis and, and, uh, and other more invasive procedures to look for genetic anomalies of the unborn child. And that has really revolutionized the, the field in terms of screening for um, genetic disorders. We're doing pretty much the same thing in our field where we can now draw tubes of blood and find cancer DNA. The challenge, though, for our field has been making sure that these tests are going to deliver in terms of how they can guide our thinking and therapies for cancer patients. And that's really where the idea of clinical utility comes in. Dan Hayes, who's also a BCR fund investigator and former ESCO president, I always quote him because he says a bad test can be just as dangerous as a bad drug. Mm. And I think that's really, really uh, important and a powerful statement to remember because we have to put tests or biomarkers, as we call them, through the same rigor as we do for any drug, because you really want to make sure your test is going to be accurate in terms of who not to treat versus who to treat. Uh, and so we've, uh, after kind of years in the making, have really been the first to launch a prospective national multi-center trial, just like a, a, a phase three drug trial, really, yeah. to see whether or not we can use circulating cell-free tumor DNA as a marker of residual disease for breast cancer patients. And so that study um, recently accrued all of the patients. We're following them up. Uh, this is, again, an early-stage breast cancer. And we, just like a drug t um, trial, we have to wait for follow-up data to really see whether or not this is going to work. Uh, you, you certainly don't suffer from a lack of activity or a, a lack of <laughs> lack of things going on. Um, and, and on top of all of that, uh, maybe we can talk about you for a second. You, you sure. throw on top of all of that um, a terrific new role and a move um, at into Vanderbilt. Congratulations yeah. on that, by the way. Thank you very much. Um, I and, appreciate and, it. You know, and I shouldn't even say role because, you know, as one can judge by all of the different things that you're doing, you, you've got multiple roles. You, you don't fill yeah. just one role. So I, I bet you wish your life were that simple or just one role. But, but, there, is, but there is one role or one aspect of, of what you do um, that I really do that I want to ask you about. Um, the, sure. and that's the Associate Director for Translational Research. Um, I mm -hmm. have loved in, in these conversations um, learning about translational research. Um, because it's just it's terrific to hear how folks like you take knowledge from one research area and translate it into clinical care and get to see what's going on and, and the back and forth. And, and I assume that has to be extremely rewarding to see how, how research translates. What does translational research mean to you, and why are you drawn to it? 
You know, I I think that is such a great question. It's probably something we don't ask ourselves enough of. Translational research can mean so many different things to so many different people. My own view of this and for how I've structured my career is really taking what I've learned both in my training as a PhD scientist as well as a MD medical doctor and figuring out how do we take observations from the lab and address important clinical problems that our patients would benefit from. And then vice versa, when we see patients suffering from cancer and certain aspects of it, whether it's disease resistance or side effects from therapy, how do we tackle that problem from a laboratory's perspective to really have an impact? And so those two are a back and forth. It's not a one-way street, but it really is hugely exciting to think about how we can affect and develop new standards of care, new discoveries that are going to help cancer patients, both in the short term and in the long term. And, you know, my my example of the liquid biopsies or self-free DNA is really um, speaks to that. You know, this is something where we've been working on that for about 10 years now. And I was fortunate in that Hopkins, my former mentor, Bert Vogelstein, really kind of defined and created that field. And so I kind of just took off from it because it was so new and it was right upstairs from my own lab. And I remember the first time we did some patient samples, I was just amazed that we could actually detect microscopic amounts of cancer in the blood. And I went up to Bert's lab and I said, you know, where we really need to focus, at least for breast cancer, is in the early stage for this over-treatment problem because I see so many patients struggling with this are they cured? Are they not cured? You know, is the chemotherapy working? Do I even need it? These are fundamental questions that patients bring to us and really speaks to the unmet need that we tried to address with uh, liquid biopsies in this trial. And it's a long process to get there. I'm the first to admit it, but it is incredibly gratifying thinking about how discoveries in the lab have made impacts into patients' lives with, with breast cancer. And that's what, how I view translational research I think my role here really also speaks to that because I'm involved with various aspects of not only what we call wet lab research where, you know, we work at the bench and we pipette little amounts of liquid and enzymes into tubes and and try to, you know, answer questions that way, but also the, the bioinformatics group here, the people who actually can take computer data and big data and make sense of it is really just incredibly strong at Vanderbilt. It's one of the best departments in the country, if not the world. And so having that opportunity to interface with them and to also get to the clinical space has been hugely fun in in the very short time that I've been here. And I view this as an opportunity where I get to help direct and lead multiple different groups with incredibly world-renowned leaders into the problem of cancer. How do we you know, use all the expertise and direct that into a focus that's going to lead for uh, benefit for our patients? That, that to me, is a, a hugely, hugely fun and exciting to be here. It, it, it's got to be. And, yes, there, there's so much going on. And, and you touched on it. I mean, is there, is there a more human question and, and the human anxiety and anxiousness that that you you know obviously clearly and and people like you deal with every day and and you know and want to try to relieve but that question um am i cured 
do I still yeah. have the disease? I mean, that, that just goes to the heart of, um, you know, what you and, and people like you are trying to resolve. I mean, we, you know, we, we think about it scientifically and medically and research wise, but you know, at you, you just, you really hit it in my mind at the core. There's just a human question, you know, doctor, am I okay? And, and that's what, yeah. And it's incredibly frustrating as from a physician perspective, not to be able to tell mm. patients whether they're cured or not. Yeah. And that I will tell you is just as debilitating for many patients as having a diagnosis of metastatic disease, not being able to overcome the fear of recurrence. Um, I, I've always been an advocate and proponent for patients to, to seek out professional help in that regard because it is so difficult to live with that. Um, you know, it's like the sort of Damocles. You're just not never sure when it's going to fall. And, you know, the, the truth is the majority of patients, it won't. It won't come back, as I was saying earlier, but it is still something that, that anyone could understand how horribly difficult that is to live with. And so I'm hopeful that with better technologies, that our clinical trial and, and others moving forward in this space will really be able to address that as well. And yeah. I, I think, again, that's an important area where seeing patients has informed my direction in the lab. Yeah, that that's wonderful. And, and you're right about that, uh, about the, the, um, uh, the psychological, if you will, but, but emotional and mental um, aspect of it. And I had a conversation on that with another BCRF uh, investigator recently. Um, Im important, um, incredibly important work as, as you identify. Um, yeah. to, to, to close out, um, how did you get into this in the first place? And I mean, going way back, I, I re believe I read that you <laughs> grew up in, in Michigan, which makes yep. you, uh, you know, another, another great Midwestern guy. Um, but, <laughs> but for you, what, was it always science? Was, you know, was it, was it puns? Was it, was it, you know, potentially <laughs> sitcom writing? What, what did you, uh, maybe a nickname writer? Maybe all of the above. All I don't of, know. Yeah, well, you did it. No, you, it was, it yeah. was interesting that, um, so, you know, I grew up in this little town in Michigan called Saginaw, and I went to a public school system that at the time wasn't really the strongest academically, and I ended up uh, almost on a whim applying for and getting accepted into your Chicago, which is the complete polar opposite. I was not prepared for this. My first quarter, I was pretty overwhelmed, um, but thankfully, I quickly caught up, and part of my decision to go to medical school was... Um, based on the fact that my father was a surgeon before he retired. Mm. And it was kind of funny because he kind of discouraged us from going to medicine. You know, he said this is a really hard life and you got to be passionate about it and love what you do if you're really going to do something like this. You know, you can't do it because you think it's a safe, secure job. Um, and I took that to heart, and I, but I ended up making the decision on my own to, to become a pre-med. And part of becoming a pre-med in most academic places, at least, is that there's um, what I like to call check boxes. You know, you have to shadow physicians, you have to do some volunteer community work. And um, even back in the 1980s, you should work in a lab at least for a summer, if not a year or more, kind of to show that you have some interest in academic research and biomedical research. And I started in a lab in sophomore year at the University of Chicago, um, Hans Schreiber, who still has a lab there. And I was fascinated. It's a tumor immunology lab. And I just thought, wow, this is incredible. And I met MD-PhD students. I met, you know, people who were actually physician scientists, including Hans, who's an MD-PhD himself. 
And I heard about these programs that you could get into to become MD, PhD physician scientists. Mm. And that really was my turning point. I really decided that, you know, if I was going to be a physician, I wanted to not just, I, I wrote this in my medical school essay. I'll never forget it. I didn't want to just treat patients. I wanted to treat the disease, meaning wow. that I wanted to figure out how to solve the puzzle of the disease, including cancer. So at a very early age and stage of my career, I was exposed to cancer tumor immunology. Um, my PhD is actually in immunology. And hmm. I like to tell the story that at some point I just thought, wow, tumor immunology is just too hard. This cancer immunotherapy is never going to work. <laughs> so I left the field. Oh. <laughs> and as many know, I was uh, far from right in my prediction. Yeah. <laughs> and in fact, tumor immunology has become one of the hottest areas. It, it's taken several decades. Um, but yeah, I was fascinated by genetics. And so in graduate school, I was working on a, um, a viral uh, retroviral project where I was mutating genes and retroviruses. Uh, HIV was a very, very, you know, big area of research at the time and still is. And I got down to this point where I could define a pathogenic behavior of a retrovirus by mutating a single base pair or a letter of DNA, as we call it. Wow. And that's when all of a sudden my light bulb moment came out. I was like, genetics is incredible. One change in the DNA alphabet leads to a black and white difference. And at the time, Bert Vogelstein was tearing up the field in cancer genetics, publishing high-profile paper after one after the next, defining really the genetic genomic landscape of cancers, particularly colon cancer at the time. And so I got lucky enough to, I applied in his lab and I got lucky enough to get accepted and the rest was history. I mean, it was just, a, it was such an elegant idea that mm. not only could we understand cancer at the DNA level, but because it was a disease of DNA, that afforded us the ability to target because those DNA changes are unique to the cancer cells compared to the normal cells surrounding them. And so if you have an abnormal DNA uh, gene or a mutated gene, you, uh, by definition, or usually will have an abnormal DNA pro or I'm sorry, an abnormal protein since DNA really just encodes for proteins. And therein lies the ability to target those proteins that are causing cancer. And now we have numerous examples of that. And I think that that's an area where um, I'm also trying to bring to bear here at Vanderbilt in, in what we call precision oncology. This is something yeah. I also started at Hopkins with our molecular tumor board, but I have the kind of capacity or ability here to really grow this to hopefully a worldwide level where we're going to have the ability to really affect patients um, who have these mistakes in their DNA that we have drugs. And I think that that's one of the, again, hugely gratifying points of my job here that um, we're going to be able to reach out to more patients, get them in here, understand what makes their tumors tick, and then hopefully find drugs that will help them. Well, it's very clear that sitcom writing's loss was medicine's gain. We're, we're, we're glad to have you on this side of the screen, and uh, thank you. Thank you for your work, and thank you for your time with me today, Dr. Park. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. That was my conversation with Dr. Park. My thanks to Dr. Park for joining and you for listening. To learn more about breast cancer research or to subscribe to our podcast, go to bcrf.org slash podcasts.